Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to begin by asking you a question. I want you to test yourself as we get started here. And so here is your test question. What are your thoughts toward those that you would like to see change, especially those who are not responding the way that you hope they would respond? Now, maybe you have somebody in your frame right now, and that would be great. If you don't, perhaps you can think about a child that you're trying to motivate to change, maybe a counselee children. Maybe you're thinking about your parents, that you are appealing to them to change. And so whoever that individual is that you have in your sight lines, what are your thoughts toward those that you would like to see change, especially those not responding the way that you hoped they would? Now, my aim here is for you to consider two things. Your motive what's going on in your heart, and your method, the practices that you employ when motivating someone to change. You see, if we do not have the proper motivation of the heart, it will affect our methods, the practices that we, that we employ. It could even tempt us to demand or manipulate someone to change while never considering how out of tune we are with God and even the narrative that he is writing for that unchanging person. And so I title this, Forcing Someone to Change Will Blow Up Your Relationships. You could probably type the word blow up in our search feature at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can read everything that I'm about to share with you. Now, as you reflect on my question about your motivation and your method for the person that you are trying to help change, Perhaps two more questions would be good for your consideration, okay? Here we go. Are you generally impatient toward the person that you want to see change? And then question number two, are you easily frustrated or critical, unforgiving or bitter or fearful toward the unchanging person? You see, sometimes our fears for that person, because we can see them heading off into a ravine, and so we become fearful, anxious, worrisome, and out of that, we are blinded to what God may be writing or doing in their life. There are more questions that I could ask you, but I think these are enough to help you to assess your heart toward those that you care about and those that you want to assist, adjust, tweak, help to go down a better path. If our hearts are not right toward those in our care, then the first thing for us to change is ourselves. We cannot export to others what we do not possess ourselves. And if we are not right with God, whether it's our motivation of our hearts or the methods and practices that we employ, we could very well botch up our efforts to help them to get right with God. Being redemptive in other people's lives starts in our hearts, not theirs. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you is because we can be so blinded 
about what we are not seeing, what we are doing. And many times that self-induced blindness is because we care so much for that individual. In fact, it is usually the people that are closest to us that we botch up. Our hearts become twisted and clouded and confused because we love them so much. Now, if this is your habit, if your habit is to assess your heart before you speak, well, you're in a great spot and you're in a better place than me because this is where I can get tripped up so easily. I think part of my problem, now I don't want you to hear this as an excuse, but because I live in a world of sanctification, always hearing about problems and seeing the effects of bad choices and so forth, it is easy for me to get tripped up, especially when I map what I see in my everyday life over those that, that I love so much. And so being slow to speak like what James told us to do, well, that is a great discipline when discipling folks. And if you are the slow-to-speak person, I rejoice with you. And I would just ask you to pray for me and other people like me who have yet to develop that habit of being slow to speak, especially with those we love. I work to be that way with others, and I do work hard at it but there is room to grow. The people in our care are unlike us, and I think that's an important point to remember. And not only are they unlike us, but God is doing something different in our lives. I think sometimes we can think that everybody's just going to walk down the same path that we're going to walk down and do it very similar to how we did it. The common temptation is to map our experiences over them, and that can accelerate our expectations for them, which can sabotage our best efforts. Let me give you a case study, and, and I want to use my old friend Biff because, well, first of all, Biff and Mabel haven't been in my life in a while, and so it's time to do a case study with Biff. Biff knows how to get things done. He is a successful guy. His reputation and business are well-known in the community. People like him, and people come to Biff to learn his secret sauce for success. On the surface, nothing is wrong with what you see in Biff. But after you get to know him, you do not want to partake in his secret sauce. And that's the way most relationships are. I talk about this in premarital counseling, that that dating relationship is fantastic because you can break up every single day as you separate for the evening and come back together tomorrow. Oh, you love that other person as he finishes your sentences. But then when you marry him and get to know him, those things that you love seem to diminish and, and all of those foibles tend to, um, tend to grow and tend to dominate your thinking. And so Biff on the outside is a businessman. Everybody loves him. But when you go to work for Biff, you learn Biff is a controller who demands his employees do things his way. And by the way, his methods work at work because his employees need a job. 
they will put up with Biff as long as he pays them well, and he does pay them well, and so they have to work with this duality, the paycheck versus the pain of working with Biff, and most of them choose the paycheck over the punishment, and so Biff can retain his employees, though he is a pain in the neck to work with. And so Biff keeps churning along, raking in the dough, and though he is a success on the business front, he is a frustrated and unsuccessful husband, father, and friend. His work methods do not export well to his home life, as you might imagine. His attempts to motivate his family members are poorly received because they're more forced than nurtured. His lack of success in the home, it confuses Biff because he knows he's right. I mean, what he wants for his wife and what he wants for his children. I mean, he wants a loving wife and he wants an obedient, uh, obedient children. When I met with Biff, he said, what's wrong with that? This is what God wants, a loving wife and obedient children. I responded, it may be what God wants. But God does not force righteousness on anyone. The Lord creates context of grace and invites people into those spaces while motivating them with His grace. The hardcore law method that Biff is implementing, it does not motivate people to change, at least not for the right reasons or in long-term sustainable ways. I mean, his methods do exactly the opposite. They discourage and they exasperate. The Lord's method is not the hardcore law method, but the grace method, motivating people to choose righteousness. God does not demand our obedience or impose it upon us as though the only thing that matters is results. The Lord does keep the end goal in mind. In fact, we see that in Hebrews 12. Jesus had the end goal in mind, and and as he was looking toward the end, he endured great suffering. Paul said it this way in Romans 2.4. This is an excellent verse talking about how God brings repentance to us. Paul said, do you presume... Do you take for granted the riches of his kindness, the riches of his forbearance, the riches of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? How how did God's kindness lead you to repentance? Maybe you didn't say it this way, but this is basically what happened. You heard about a man who died on a tree, and he died for your sins. And all you had to do, like in uh, Numbers 21 with the brazen serpent, look and live. It's not by your works that you have done, but by the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. It is Christ's work that allows us to be saved. It is God's kindness to us. Our loving Heavenly Father could have accomplished His purposes for us without us, I I suppose. He could have made us righteous by 
But by doing so, it would have marginalized our relationship with him. And so after he regenerated us by his kindness, he invited us into a relationship with him, a reciprocal relationship. Not a robotic relationship, but a a human divine reciprocality after he regenerated us. Biff prefers the robot approach with his employees and with his family. He wants hardwired, hired hands to accomplish his goals, a strategy that is blowing up his family. Now, his employees won't leave because they need a job, but his children are not as obligated and they are not as bound. They won't leave now because they are young and his wife is unwilling to divorce, at least not today. Biff has put his family between a rock and a hard place. The rock is that he wants them to be how he legislates. The hard place is they resist what he wants, and he cannot legislate his mandates. The tension in the home moves between uneasy peace and explosive anger. It has yet to occur to Biff how his outcome, the results, was never meant to be his to determine. God has not called us to determine the outcome in people's lives, but he calls us to trust him for those results. Our job is to water and to plant, and God is the one that provides the growth. And so as we trust him with the results, even results that may not be to our liking, God has called us to faithfully and gratefully work the process while leaving the outcome to him. The problem is that Biff wants to plant water and manage, manipulate, and mandate the growth. James would call Biff arrogant in James chapter 4. A man who tries to control the process and the outcome does not need God because he is a God. There is no room in Biff's world for God because Biff has everything under control. By the way, the word control is critical here. Talking about the motive of Biff's heart, he's a control freak. He likes to be in control. That is his motivation, and that's why his methods are such as they are. Because he has to be in control, he has to do it his way, Because there is no other way, because if there were another way, he would not be in control. Being in control is an illusion that he wants to perpetuate because ultimately none of us are in control. But Biff wants to live in that illusionary world where he believes that he is actually in control And he even perpetuates that by controlling, managing, manipulating everyone else in his world. Again, he can pull that off with his employees. They can be angry at him, as they are. His wife is mad at him. And his children are growing in resentment by the day, which will turn into full-blown rebellion once they become courageous enough to share their true thoughts with him. This tragedy happens in many marriages and family debacles when one person, usually a parent, believes that they know how things ought to be. They mandate the outcome based on their belief, inevitably leading to 
disaster as we see in Biff's case. I suspect most of the time the parent is correct in what they believe and want to do, though their rightness is not in debate here. It is probably worth slowing down at this point to reiterate that point. You see, it's not about being right. Many parents are right in what they want, but I think sometimes the rightness of their position can actually blind them to the methods that they, they employ. And that is the problem when the parent tries to mandate righteousness on a family member. The parent may be sincerely trying to avert dangers and disasters that they see gathering on the horizon of the child's life, but legislating morality is a multifaceted problem that needs divine perspective and intervention. You see, parents are not omniscient. Parents do not have God's full mind on the issues. God is a multitasker. When a problem comes into a child's life, it could be that God is doing a great work in the parent's life, in addition to the child's life, and maybe any number of other people. God could even perpetuate the problems in the child's life for his good purposes. We are not omniscient. But the legislative parent does not understand how God can use sin sinlessly to accomplish his good purposes. Imagine if Jacob intervened in Joseph's life before he ever made it down to Egypt because what was happening to Joseph was wrong. Joseph was on a bad path, and though it wasn't his fault, Jacob could have come in, in my uh, fictional scenario here and averted trouble for Joseph, and thus he doesn't go to Egypt, and there is no Savior born. Self-reliance rather than God-reliance is a natural temptation for all parents. Parents genuinely do not want their loved ones to suffer. I don't, and I I know you don't, but that is a prospect that is impossible to avoid. Suffering was a promise from God, and you can read it in Genesis 3, verses 7 through 19. Some parents have yet to learn how God perfects his strength in our weaknesses. Sometimes God has to weaken a child to display his power through the child. Take Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians 12. Say you're parenting Paul, the great apostle, and he has a thorn in his flesh, and it's like, I'm going to take this out of you because this is hurting you, and I know best, not realizing that that thorn was provided by God for a specific purpose to strengthen Paul through Paul's weaknesses. Biff can get away with his tactics and strategies at work because his employees will do things his way or they will leave. Biff has bought into his culture's view of success. It's called win. And you'll hear people talk, that's a win. It's all about the win. By the way, Jesus dying on a tree, that was a win too. Biff can't get away with running roughshod over his family. His bad habits create a blind spot for him. His reaction leaves him with with three options. This is what Biff can do. He can hire robots. He can change how he treats people. 
or he can continue living in familial dysfunction while alienating himself from everyone who is important to him. Let's say that he hires robots for work. Let's say that he marries a robot for his home, and then he can program them to do what he wants. It would be a perfect world if there were anything that he did not like about his robo-world. If he made a mistake, which is probably not likely, of course, or if he came to understand things differently, that would be an anomaly too. But what he could do is he could upgrade his robot 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. He could create an infinite number of iterations to have new and improved workers, an ever-improving wife, and always compliant children. Biff controlling and managing his world according to his expectations. He could accomplish his goals with little relational angst, effort, or challenges. And that's what Biff wants. Of course, well, there's at least one problem with this schema. God wants relationships, not robots for hire. Even though the Lord knew those relationships would be quite messy, we are a messy lot. But see, God understands the doctrines of salvation and progressive sanctification. He will take any person at any time just as they are and relate to them in such a way that motivates them toward change. He also gives us room to wobble. How wonderful is that? The Lord patiently works the change process without mandating artificial timelines for change. You will change by this weekend. And though God is a bottom-line being, meaning he wants Christ-like results. I mean, that's what he wants. That is the bottom line. But he is also aware of the process. One of the blessings here is how it deepens our relationship with God. The ongoing process of change, which includes a lot of failure, it gives him opportunities to demonstrate his love to us even while we are imperfectly wobbling our way into Christ-likeness. He does not respond to us according to what we deserve. He provides love, courageous love, sometimes confrontative love, ad infinitum. You see, the word Adam means red man or man of the dirt. We see that in Genesis 2-7. God made Adam, took him out of the dirt. We are dust. I'm a dirt clod, and you are a dirt clod too. The Lord knows this because he created Adam from the dirt. God loves playing in the dirt, and he knows his audience intimately well. He knows life is, is not about present tense perfection, but a process that matures within a context of loving leadership that moves us into ever-unfolding Christ-likeness. Do you see dirty friends and family members as opportunities to cooperate with God to shape them for His glory? You remember what Paul said in 4-7 of 2 Corinthians? That this treasure is in clay pots, fragile, dirt-cloddy pots. Or are you tempted to manipulate the clay pots in your life according to your preferences rather than trusting the Lord? 
Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, one of the more challenging verses in all of Scripture. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now, he did not have to add that little last part there, be patient with them all. But Paul talked about people differences when he wrote that sentence in Thessalonians. He wanted to make sure that the people of Thessalonica understood how different people are and how treating everybody the same way would be wrong. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we see three people groups, the unruly, the small-souled, which is the faint-hearted. It literally means small soul. There's a limited capacity there, whether it's a permanent limited capacity or a, a temporary limited capacity. And then the physically and mentally challenged. And then notice how he closes his appeal by saying that they should be patient with all of them. Paul was not talking about the result that we want with people, but he was talking about the process of imperfect, plotting people making their way to what we hope would be Christ-likeness. Paul's appeal for the unruly, for the faint-hearted, for the weak is even more critical regarding our wives, our husbands, our children, our close friends, and our local churches. You see, everybody is different. Each person requires specialized and customized discipleship attention. And so we want to cooperate with God in the transformation of others. And that is our fantastic honor. Suppose our primary focus is just the result of the process and not the methods. The methods do not matter. Well, in that case, there is a good chance we will miss the blessing of engaging our friends in mutually beneficial transformational opportunities that will elevate the fame of Jesus while maturing our relationships. And so I led by asking a question, addressing your motives and your methods. They must be in tune with God. We cannot map our experiences and our expectations over what we want with people without considering what the possibilities might be in God's mind. It could be that God is taking your child down a long path to Egypt because he has this wondrous mission in mind. And sometimes that is difficult as we watch. And so we want to be in tune with God, being slow to speak, addressing our motives and our methods, cooperating and always motivating by grace. I want to give a brief addendum here for spouses. I just want to pull out a little bit of time to talk very briefly about husbands and wives. Did you know that your spouse is a double damaged person? Your spouse was born in sin and had parents born in sin. Imagine that. It's a double whammy coming from Adam and parented by Adamic people. You receive double damaged goods when you married your spouse. No matter how great their parents were, they were not perfect, and your spouse did not arrive at the altar entirely sanctified. More than likely, there are traces of residual problems that Adam and their parents left 
in your spouse, making it vital that you become a student of your unique spouse so you can cooperate uniquely with God in the redemptive narrative that he is writing for your unique spouse. Too often the newly wedded person expects things from their spouse without carefully discerning the damaged goods they married with the purpose of discipling them into Christ-likeness. Sometimes a spouse will say, this is not what I signed up for. Well, I must ask, and you signed up for what? A perfect man, a perfect woman, or a work in progress? Your spouse is a dirt clod. Suppose you are demanding a result without helping your spouse achieve the goal of glorifying God. In that case, you need to rethink your motives and your methods while recalibrating your perspectives to something a little more in line with God's Word. I've titled this, Forcing Someone to Change Will Blow Up Your Relationships. It would be best never to alter the biblical change process to reach your goal. It doesn't work that way. Now, maybe you're right in what should happen, that you have the right goal in mind. But the process to get to that good end, it might not be the path that you would choose. Perhaps these few questions that I want to ask you as I wrap up here will assist in your reflections about how change works. Something that you can apply to anybody that you're discipling, whether it's a family member or a friend. Question number one, how are you creating a context of grace in your relationship that is conducive to sanctification and growth of the individual that you are helping? Question number two, what resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness are you harboring against someone that you want to see changed? but they're not changing yet. Now, if that's true, you need to name it and claim it. What resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness that you're harboring, name it. And then claim it, I mean, confess that to God and ask him to help you to change. Question three, in what ways have you demanded changes without entering the complicatedness of their world or discerning the Lord's mind of this person? What do you believe God has in mind? I realize that's a subjective assessment, and maybe you want to talk to uh, someone who is competent or a couple of people that you want to bring in because we can't have blind spots. But even though it's subjective, we want to try to discern God's mind and what's going on in this individual's life and not be so demanding before we enter into their complicatedness to understand them or God's mind. Number four, are you aware that even if you are right, the result you hope for may not happen, or it may not happen at this time? How do you usually respond to those who are not doing what you ask them to do? Are you resting and trusting, or are you demanding and manipulating? Is there something you must address with God and the person you're attempting to help? If so, what is your plan 
for change. Again, if you want to find this at lifeovercoffee.com, all you have to do is look for the title, Forcing Someone to Change Will Blow Up Your Relationship. We are a discipleship training ministry. We help Christians to learn how to do the work of discipleship. We're not a counseling ministry. We don't provide counseling. We don't have the human resources to do that. Uh, that is a time-consuming thing that we just don't have the allocation of funds or people to do counseling. But we do train people. We have an all-online mastermind program. We have thousands of free resources where people are, are coming and partaking. They're reading, they're watching, they're listening, they're benefiting from the resources, and they're growing, maturing, and changing, and learning how to help other people. They do that on their own. If you want some assistance, you can consider our mastermind program is all online and it teaches you how to do the work of discipleship. We also have a lot of other resources and so please go to lifeovercoffee.com, check them out, use them freely, share with your friends and let us know how we can serve you. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.